All right, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. And uh, let's put in at verse 25. The Apostle Paul has been making a series of unflattering comparisons regarding the nation of Israel. He compared them to Ishmael rather than Isaac. He compared them to Esau rather than Jacob. He compared them to Pharaoh rather than to Moses. Then, using an illustration, he said they were a lump of clay that was marred on the potter's wheel and only good to be thrown out into the potter's field, which is the trash heap. In a moment, quoting from the Old Testament prophets, Paul is going to compare the Jews to the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you were a Jew listening to this, you're not having a very good day. This is not a self-esteem building message. It's a rough sermon, uh, but it's something they needed to hear. And so in verse 25, he says, uh, now quoting from the prophets, he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. <clears throat> Excuse me. I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. That's a loose quote of Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. In Hosea, those words refer to Israel and not to the Gentiles. They look forward to the time when Israel will be restored as God's people and as his beloved. But when Paul quotes them here in Romans, he's applying them to the call of the Gentiles. How can Paul make such a radical change? Well, he doesn't, but the Holy Spirit who inspired the words in the first place, he has the right to apply them to the current situation. He wasn't saying that Gentiles had replaced Israel. He simply used the Hosea passage to argue that God is always reaching out to people who do not know him. He did it to the Jews who were in rebellion, and he does it now to the Gentiles who are lost. Why should it be so strange anyway that Gentiles would be saved if you were a Jew? Well, in fact, the Jews were charged with spreading the knowledge of God to the surrounding nations. It was always God's will that none should perish. He has always been a whosoever will believe God of salvation. It should therefore come as no shock to the Jews of the first century that God was saving Gentiles. The thing I love most about the story of Jonah not wanting to go to Nineveh is that he didn't want those people to get saved. And he knew that they were likely to get saved if they heard the message of judgment. He hated the Ninevites, the Assyrian people. Uh, he couldn't wait for God to judge them. Uh, and so you would think he'd be all excited about going and an announcing a message of judgment, right? Hey, this is like the greatest thing in the world. But he went the other way because he knew God was a God of whosoever will believe. And that there was a at least a fighting chance that those people would turn from their sin and uh, trust the Lord, and he didn't want that. And so for the Jew, you know, part of the argument here in the, or, or the confusion in the heart of the first century Jew is, what is God doing? How has he set us aside? Why is he reaching out to the Gentiles? It should have been no strange thing that God was reaching out to the Gentiles. In one place, I, I forget who, I think it's Paul or Peter says, <clears throat> there, you know, God is saving us just like he's saving Gentiles, as if to put them in the first position. And so it's not strange that God wants to save individuals. Then, too, 
there was no promise that everyone born a Jew was automatically saved. Salvation was not by race, but by righteousness. It was not inconsistent to reject Jews who refused to believe. Now, the second verse is Hosea 1, verse 10. It shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they should be called sons of the living God. Now, once again, in its Old Testament setting, this verse is not speaking about Gentiles, but describing Israel's future restoration to God's favor. Yet Paul applies it to God's acknowledgement of the Gentiles as his sons. Again, the Holy Spirit quotes from the Old Testament in the New Testament, and he can rightfully apply uh, the verses as he wishes. I guess all I'm saying is that the Holy Spirit can't misquote the Bible. Uh, and, And so you and I, we can take a verse out of context, but we can't accuse the Holy Spirit of of taking a verse out of context because he's the one that's writing it. And so by applying these verses to Gentiles, here's an important question. Is the Holy Spirit suggesting that Gentiles have actually replaced Israel in God's plan? There's one kind of off the uh, top of your head, you might think, well, if the Holy Spirit is applying verses that used to apply to Israel, now to Gentiles, maybe, maybe God is through with Israel. Well, we know that Gentiles have not replaced Israel but are included in God's plan. We know that Israel, ethnic Israel, has not been replaced because it's plainly stated later in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. I've quoted these before, but they're important verses. Paul says there, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And so Paul makes it clear by the time we get to chapter 11 that this was a mystery. And a mystery in the Bible is something that was previously unknown that is now being revealed and told. And so Paul says, really, Uh, this wasn't clearly understood in the Old Testament how God was going to set us aside in order to deal with Gentiles, but it's there, but Israel will be saved. Uh, And he mentioned Zion and Jacob. And and, and so the the most literal and easiest way to understand this is is the way we do understand it, that uh, Israel as a nation rejected Christ. So God has set them aside for a time nationally. Now he deals with all people on the basis of Uh, salvation by grace through faith alone, Jew and Gentile, but one day the church will be uh, taken to heaven. We'll talk about that in just a minute, and he'll get uh, back to his dealings with Israel. There is a teaching, some call it replacement theology. That's probably the easiest way to remember it. Uh, Others who want to sound smart call it supersessionism. So uh, that sounds weird to me, so we don't use that term here. Uh, but it's replacement theology, and it teaches that the church is the replacement for Israel and that the many promises made to Israel in the Bible are fulfilled in the Christian church, not in Israel. The prophecies in Scripture concerning the blessing and restoration of Israel to the promised land are spiritualized or allegorized into promises of God's blessing for the church. <clears throat> and though you and I, you may come up to me afterward and say, you know, I don't know anybody who believes that. You do. They just haven't told you yet. Uh, A lot of Christians uh, from, for example, a Reformed background or a Catholic background, this is what they believe. They believe that 
that Israel in the Old Testament is another name for the church and that Jews, ethnic Jews, really have no place anymore in God's plan. They can get saved just like everybody else, but there's no specific plan that God has for the nation of Israel. If you want a quick but foolproof way to refute replacement theology, it can be found in the New Testament passages that consistently divide the world into three distinct groups with which God continues to have dealings. Jews, Gentiles, and the church. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, the scripture says, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks, which is another word for Gentiles, or to the church of God. And so Paul, first century, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he believed that there were three distinct groups, the Jews, the Greeks, and the church of God. Then there's Acts 15, verses 14 through 17. Simon, or Peter, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. This is a description of the church, Gentiles whom God is saving. Verse 15, after this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. And so James there is talking about the restoration of the nation of Israel. And so he says in verse 14, God's taking out Gentiles, that's the church. After that, he's going to build the tabernacle of David. And that's a reference to uh, the nation of Israel. And verse 17, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. And so three very distinct groups that God has dealings with in the Scripture. And so it's biblically clear that there are at least these three groups. John Walverd, another one of those guys who when you're in the thrift store, if you see a book by John Walverd, buy it. And if you don't want it, I'll buy it from you. Uh, good guy, didn't write too much, but a brilliant scholar. He suggests that we look at the prophetic program of God in four divisions adding God's program for angels to that of Jews, Gentiles, and the church. And that pretty well covers everybody that's talked about in the Bible. Uh, and, you know, God just, he does have a, a separate program for angels. Uh, there are elect angels and fallen angels. And so, uh, obviously, he's dealing with them differently than he deals with the Jews, than he deals with the Gentiles, than he deals with the church. Walvert also provides an important clarification about the distinction between various people who are in the Bible called the seed of Abraham. Now, we had this a few weeks ago, but it bears repeating. <clears throat> who are the seed of Abraham? Well, the seed of Abraham can in the Bible refer to all the natural physical descendants of Israel. They are the seed of Abraham because they've descended physically from him. The seed of Abraham can in the Bible refer to what Paul called earlier in this chapter spiritual Israel. That means descendants of Abraham, Jews, who are also justified by grace through believing in God. The seed of Abraham can in the Bible also refer to Gentiles who by virtue of being saved in Jesus Christ qualify for certain promises made to Gentiles in the Abrahamic covenant. And so referring to Gentiles as a spiritual seed of Abraham does not usurp the place of Israel at all. 
Gentiles do not replace Israel. The church does not replace Israel. We all fit into God's overall prophetic program that includes Israel. You must keep that clear. One author put your choices like this. All of the different views of the relationship between the church and Israel are divided into two camps. Either the church is a continuation of Israel, that would be replacement or covenant theology, or the church is completely different and distinct from Israel, that is dispensationalism, premillennialism. We are dispensational and premillennial. That means that we believe God deals in distinct ways with these different groups, has different plan and promises for each of them, All are saved the same way. It's not a different scheme of salvation. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But it's clear that God is dealing differently and at different times. And premillennial means that we believe there will be a literal kingdom on the earth of a thousand years, but that the church will be removed from the earth prior to the great tribulation that brings us to that millennial kingdom. Romans 9, 27. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant shall be saved. You recognize the sand of the sea as God's promise to Abraham regarding his descendants. It refers to multiplied multitudes. A remnant, that's a much smaller portion of something, in this case, ethnic Jews. And so Isaiah anticipated that though there would be multitudes of Jews born, Only a remnant would in the end be saved. Now, in its original context, Isaiah was referring to the Jews in the Babylonian captivity. Paul was applying it to their present and prophetic history. We recognize this remnant as those Jews who remain at the end of the great tribulation. They shall be saved in the sense that they will be supernaturally preserved through the time of intense global persecution, and they will recognize and receive Jesus Christ as their Messiah at his second coming. Verse 28 says, he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. We have the benefit of reading this from the perspective of a complete Bible. We interpret this through the words of Jesus who once said that a time of great trouble was coming upon the earth to test the Jews especially and that God would shorten those days in order to save his elect people. Remember Jesus said, unless those days be shortened, all flesh would be destroyed. And um, not that they're, they're still gonna last seven years because that's the tribulation. He's not gonna knock off a few months or, you know, he's, he's in that saying that that time has a unique beginning and end. If it, if it went beyond that, everybody would be destroyed. The great tribulation that comes upon the whole earth finishes God's discipline against the nation of Israel. It's, it's, a, it's a silly comparison, I guess, in some ways, but it's not unlike you disciplining a child and giving them a boundary and saying, hey, go to your room and stay there for 10 minutes until this timer goes off. And so God has determined a period of time to discipline the nation of Israel. It will finish with the seven-year great tribulation. And that's why Jeremiah, in his prophecy, in chapter 30, verse 7, he calls the great tribulation, the seven-year great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob, who was descended from Abraham, from whom the 12 tribes came, 
When Jeremiah thought of the great tribulation, he recognized that though it encompasses the whole earth and though it has to do with all the nations of the world and all the peoples on the earth, it is specifically, primarily, most importantly, the time of Jacob's being troubled so that God can win the hearts of the Jews uh, at his return. Verse 29 And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been made like Gomorrah. Sabaoth means hosts or armies. And so I think this is a reminder that God controls the affairs of men on the earth. He is the God of armies, his own angelic armies, and he controls the armies of the men of the earth in the sense uh, that he is God and in control. He has a vast supernatural resource by which he accomplishes his will on the earth as in heaven. Though earthly armies and enemies may for a time persecute the Jews, they cannot prevail against the Lord. Isaiah here mentions a seed. This is even smaller than a remnant. So remember he said there are multitudes, sand of the sea, out of them a remnant, actually a seed is going to be saved. This is the smallest part that we can get to. Remember Paul's point in quoting these texts is to show that God is being consistent in his dealings with Israel, if only a seed from the remnant was saved, a tiny portion of Jews, it would be consistent with what God had promised them that he would save them and restore them to their land. What Paul was telling the Jews by quoting Isaiah was that they had become so wicked that God must discipline them. They were like Sodom and Gomorrah. But in the midst of his discipline, he would save the righteous, a small remnant, a seed. When will Israel's national salvation occur? There's a hint in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, where you read, Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. This text points directly to Zechariah 12.10, which reads like this, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. These are describing the second coming of Jesus Christ after the resurrection and rapture of the church and after the seven-year great tribulation and after all of that, the Lord will return in his second coming And the remnant that is alive, the Jews that are alive on planet Earth at that time who have survived the great tribulation, all of them will be saved. They will look upon him whom they've pierced. They will understand that Jesus Christ, whom they pierced through crucifixion uh, in the first century, that he was and is indeed their savior. I happened this morning, actually it was yesterday morning now, to come across a very good article by Dr. Andy Woods In it, he gives a few simple differences between Israel and the church. So if you're still struggling trying to put this in perspective and think, well, you know, maybe I see what you're saying, Gene, and it seems to make sense, but, you know, there maybe is there other evidence that there's a distinction between Israel and the church, or are you making too much of that from these few scriptures? Uh, Here are nine more things real quick. Uh, they're from a list actually by, uh, that Lewis Berry Chafer put together, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, of about 24 different things. But here are some things to just keep in mind 
uh, to convince yourself that, hey, yeah, really there is a different plan for Israel than for the church. Number one, Israel is called the wife of Jehovah, while the church is what? The bride of Jesus Christ. Israel gave birth to Christ. Jesus gives birth to the church. Christ will return to rescue Israel upon her national conversion at the end of the tribulation. He returns to rescue the church at the rapture. King-subject imagery is used to depict God's relationship to Israel, while head and groom imagery is used to depict Christ's relationship with the church. Four-fifths of the Bible pertain to Israel. Only one-fifth pertains to the church. You know, Israel is the major, other than God and Jesus Christ, the nation of Israel is the major subject of the Bible. Four-fifths of the Bible are about God's dealings with Israel. Israel is a nation with physical boundaries and a capital. By contrast, the church is not a nation, but is comprised of people from all nations, and we don't have a capital. It's not Hanford. Or Riverdale, I know, yeah. Some of you think it is Riverdale, and that's sad. While Israel will be resurrected at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, church-age believers receive their resurrected bodies at the point of the rapture. Israel's judgment will take place on the earth at the end of the tribulation in the wilderness. By contrast, the only judgment New Testament reveals for the church is at the bema of Christ, the reward seat of Christ in heaven following the rapture. While Christ's farewell address to Israel is recorded in the Olivet Discourse, his farewell address to the church is found in the Upper Room Discourse. And so when you really start thinking about it, It's not hard to understand at all that Israel is not the church and the church is not Israel. All of this got messed up um, in around around the third and fourth centuries when the church was doing pretty well and there was no persecution and it was kind of the state religion uh, and it was rich and filled with, you know, gold and treasure and all of that. And some of these guys like Augustine, smart guys, They came along and they said, maybe this is what the Bible means. Maybe this is heaven on earth. And they started to try to interpret the Bible through their current situation rather than interpret their current situation through the Bible. If they had done that, they would have found out that they were off track in what they were thinking and doing and gathering all that wealth and joining with the government and persecuting people and stuff like that. But instead, uh, they changed. And so people nowadays say, well, this is what the early church believed. No, no, it wasn't. The early church believed that the rapture was gonna take place at any moment because Paul had to write to the Thessalonians and say they were upset because people were dying, Christians were dying, and they thought that they had somehow missed the rapture and weren't going to go to heaven. And Paul didn't say, no, you've missed it entirely. This is all an allegory. It's all a metaphor. Don't worry about it. No, he said, hey, no, I, I, I thought I explained this to you. Let me, let me be clear. There's going to be a rapture, and when that takes place, the dead in Christ, they're going to rise first, and then we which are alive and remain will be caught up to be with the Lord. And, and so everywhere you look in the pages of Scripture, there's a distinction between Israel, the church, Gentiles, angels, and the fact that the Lord is coming before he finishes his work with Israel to take us out and bring us home. Uh, and so um, 
you know, we're not saying people who hold contrary viewpoints aren't Christians, not at all. They say that about us sometimes, but we're nice to them. I was reading some stuff. We've been talking about Jacob, if you're here for Jacob's last study especially, um, last Wednesday night of, of, the, of uh, whatever month, last month was, December. Uh, he talked about dispensationalism, and there are a lot of uh, Reformed believers and, and covenant theologians and replacement theologians who actually go so far as to say that dispensationalism, what I'm talking about, is a cult, that it's a non-Christian cult or a heresy. Uh, it's not. It's just a different way of understanding the, uh, the scriptures. It's, the, I, we believe, the correct way of understanding the scriptures, the most normal, straightforward way. Uh, and, uh, you know, I give, I give some of these guys some leeway in the second century, third century, up until, you know, even the early 1900s. It was really difficult to look at human history and to say, yeah, I think Israel's going to be a nation again. I think God's going to bring the Jews back. Now, you will find guys who said that. H.A. Ironside, for example, is one. I just read some stuff from Ironside the other day where he says, you know, doesn't look like it right now, but the Bible says that God is going to regather his people to their ancient homeland. Uh, and then, of course, he did. And so I can understand you're, you're, you know, you're third century, fourth century, fifth century, and you're looking at the fact that the church is rich and full of goods and in cahoots with the government, and you think, maybe this is the city of God. Maybe this is the millennial kingdom. Maybe it's all spiritual, and we've realized it on the earth. I can see the confusion. It, it, I, I, I probably would have been confused, too. It, it would have taken a real leap to, to continue to, you know, to, with, with what the Bible was actually teaching. But now, I mean... Wouldn't you think that once May 14, 1948 happened and Israel was a nation again, that some people would scratch their heads and think, huh, maybe we were wrong. Maybe there is a literal plan for the nation of Israel. Maybe God isn't done with those people. And, uh, of course, that's what we believe and, and think and teach and are waiting for. And that's, uh, we live in exciting times, and uh, I think that we have a good framework for understanding them. Amen?